0: Everyone, Um, our second Bible reading. It comes from uh, Genesis chapter twenty-five, and we're going from uh, verse nineteen to the end. Yeah, you can find that on your pew Bibles on page twenty-five. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he married Rebecca, daughter of. Uh, Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and, said, and his wife became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the, to, of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger when the time came for her to give birth there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment so they named him Esau after this his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Once, once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of, of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why that he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore a, to an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and su- some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Mary. Good day, everyone. Bibles again to Genesis 25. That's where we'll spend a fair bit of our time. And then we're going to jump across to Genesis 27 as well. I have a few prayers, for what's about to happen next, but I want to pray as well. And then we'll get into it. I'm going to keep moving that away. Here we go, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are utterly and completely dependent on you. So would you please work in us that we might hear you? And then would you do an amazing thing where not only do we hear, but we obey and we are changed. Father, we know too that um, we are responsible for our actions, so we pray that we would responsibly listen to you now, that we might responsibly obey. We pray these things that Jesus might be even more glorified in us. Amen. Uh, in honour of yesterday's Gen Y Golf Day, which I kind of snuck under, I don't sure how, I wonder if you've, you've heard the story about the pastor and the whole in one. Take it by your silence, you haven't. As the story goes, there was once a pastor, uh, let's call him John, uh, who decided one Sunday morning that he didn't uh, much feel like church today. So rather than going and serving his flock, uh, he sent his family off to church and then he ducked out and went down to the local golf course. Uh, On arriving at the golf course, he wasn't much in the mood to pay either, so he slipped under the fence and he started to play. Uh, well, as in the case of Job, if you know the story of Job, Satan just happened to be standing before God that day and he turned to God and he asked him what he was going to do about the dishonesty of the pastor. To which God replied, sort of a wry smile on his face, just just, just you wait and see. Watch what happens, hole five. Well, the fifth hole came around and the pastor lined for his shot and the pastor took his swing and he struck that white ball like he'd never struck it before. And the ball sailed through the air and it skimmed off a tree and it bounced off a rock and into the cup. A hole in one. Satan couldn't believe it uh, any more than our pastor, the unnamed Pastor John. And he turned to God and he says, what? Why? Why rewards with success such obvious sin? With an even bigger smile on his face. God turned to Satan, you know what he said? It might look like success now, but who's he going to (laughs) tell? Yeah, okay, fair enough. It's not a great joke, but it raises some good questions, questions relevant to God's word to us today. In particular, the question of who's really in control. In the actions we take, be they saintly or sin, uh, in the consequences that follow, be they failure, success, who's in control of your life and mine? Now, our pastors will tell us that God's in control, but that raises the question: Does that make us puppets? Our society tells us that we're in control, but that raises the question. Is God then less God? One poet wrote, "It matters no much. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul." The question is, was he right? I take it, that's the basic creed of the world we live in, but was he right? And not just in our daily decisions and the consequences of life, but in the eternal decisions, the decision of heaven and hell. Who's that one up to? Who's responsible for that? See, because it's all up to God, why bother with this evangelism we talk so much about? And if it's all up to us, what hope do we have? Well, the account in front of us this evening, I think, is one of the most important in considering those questions. It's the account of Jacob and Esau, an account that begins, it says there on your outlines, if you've got those handy, with a very revealing birth, a very revealing birth. Before I go on, can we pull some of these shades down? I can see half the room over here going like this. So, Anthony, anyone near, can to pull some of those shades? I can see all sorts of squinty eyes. Maybe we can get those down. It's another wiggle break for those who need more wiggles. Almost mood lighting, wonderful. First point in your outlines, a very revealing birth. In your Bibles, Genesis chapter 25, verse 9, to read along. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Why? Well, because just as Sarah was before her, remember her? She was barren. In fact, uh, for 20 long years, see there verse 26? 20 years after her marriage there, verse 20. Try as she might, hope as she might, cry as she might. Rebecca was barren. And so Isaac prayed. I wonder how many times it. Isaac prayed. To so the God who promised him, do you remember, more children than there are stars in the sky, Isaac prayed. In verse 21, the Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. And verse 22, the babies jostled, or literally, they pushed each other around. What's kind of a revealing little sneak peek of what's to come within her. And not surprisingly, a few thousand years before the help of ultrasound, she said, Why is this happening to me? And so, verse 23 the Lord answered with a revelation of what he had predetermined for the lives of her sons and the nations that would follow Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And surprisingly, unexpectedly, with absolutely no reference, do you notice, to what either child will do, what either child will deserve, with absolutely no consideration of merit or performance, it says, the older will serve the younger. The junior, God says will rule the senior. It's the younger, God says, who I have chosen. So the children are born there, verse 24. And now comes the verse first, verse 25. And he's red, we're told there. And he's hairy, we're told there. And so naturally, they name him Elmo. Elmo. Sorry, right. I know you're all thinking it when it was read. No, not really. They name him Esau. Since Esau sounds something like the Hebrew for hairy. The name matched the man. And then out comes the second, we're told verse 26, do you see it? Uh, oddly clinging to his brother's heel. And what is yet another revelation of what's to come? Out comes the second, kind of trying to cheat the first out of his place. And so that's what they name him. The cheat, this is one to lock away, baby name book. The heel. They name him Jacob. A name which actually means may the Lord protect. Little footnote's not quite right in your Bibles, but it sounds like the Hebrew for heel. It seems to carry this idea of clutching the heel, think AFL, legging the opposition. It's it's kind of cheating your composition. Anyway, our story begins with a revealing birth. And our story continues with a dysfunctional family. You get the first hints there, verse 27, do you see? As brother is distanced from brother, as mother is set against father, as battle lines are drawn right down the centre of the house, and as each are as bad and as guilty as the other. See verse 27? The boys grew up. And what did Esau become? Esau became a man's man skillful hunter man of the open country think Bear Grylls but probably not quite as nice or, or think Hugh Jackman kind of full Wolverine pose and then, and then turn and look at Jacob who, who unlike Esau he, he was well he's, he's a mummy's boy <laughs> in my experience second sons often are apologies to my younger brother He's a quiet man. He won't listen to this recording, don't worry about that. I'm um, staying among the tents. And, and we're told Isaac, who, who had a taste for wild game, well, he loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, now Esau, will discover, is a man driven by passion instead of by God, who, who lives for the moment and, and not for the future. Who, well, who lives for himself. And for nobody else. And Jacob will discover, well, different in lots of ways, isn't any better. A cheat from his birth, a deceiver to the end. In fact, before his story's over, and you can go home and read chapters ahead if you like after this, he'll have robbed his own brother, deceived his own father, and cheated his father-in-law. And then we turn to the parents. See, if Jacob's a liar we'll find out he got it from his mum. And if Esau's allowed, well, he got that from his dad. See, I wonder if you noticed there, tucked away in verse 28, why it was Isaac loved Esau. It's because of what? He could get him. Because Esau fed Isaac's appetites. It's like father like son. See, I want to say this is a very dysfunctional family and I don't know about you, I reckon this is exactly the sort of family our reality shows would dream of. You know, the family that brings its own scandal, brings its own hostility, brings its own sleaze without need of a script. It's exactly the family our reality shows dream of. And it's exactly the family our God would choose. It'd be just like him. See, from the most rotten material he will continue his promise and remarkably really he will do it through their rotten behavior so he had promised that the older will serve the younger and and we're about to see how the older himself will see that promise fulfilled in the despising of his birthright verse 29 at once when jacob was cooking some stew esau came in from the open country famished and he said to jacob quick Let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That's why he's also called Edom. Edom means red. And Jacob replied, kind of seizing the opportunity, that manipulative little creep that he was, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? And just for a moment, I want to ask you, do you think that was actually true? Do you think there are any reported cases of someone dying from a lack of lentil stew? Death from lentil stew maybe, but but I'm going to die, he says. Give me some stew, but Jacob says, 33, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. So little did he care for his place in the family. So little did he care for the promises of the patriarch, the fathers before him. So little did he care for his place in God's plan that that for just a momentary pleasure, he gave it all away. For, For a moment's satisfaction, he let it all go. It really was just a moment, wasn't it? Just see verse 34? Jacob gave Esau some bread, some lentil stew. He ate, drank, got up, left. And just like that, for a sip of soup, Esau despised his birthright. See, what, what God had predicted, Esau enacted. What God had promised, Esau fulfilled and so too did Jacob in actions that match his name so if you turn over to chapter 27 turn with me chapter 27 in your Bibles, Genesis 27 It'd be nice to hear at least a little ruffle I i not know you're with me turn to 27 we We're going to read further big chunks of it and we're going to see that Isaac is still favoring his precious firstborn and Anyway, and what is strangely different to the cultural norm? And you can compare this to the end of Genesis and to Joseph later. Anyway, what's strangely different from the cultural norm? Rather than calling in all his sons for blessing, he calls in how many? Just one. And, and what is strangely similar to the episode just read, Isaac offers Esau food in exchange for his blessing. Verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his oldest son. And he said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now, now then, get your weapons, your quiver, bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me so I might give you my blessing before I die. But Rebecca will see, will have nothing of it. Somehow overhearing the plan, perhaps with an ear at the door, she sets to work. And she calls her son. Do you see how it says, verse 6? And she says to him, verse 8, Now my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you go out to the flock and bring me two choice goats so i can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it then take it to your father to eat so he may give you his blessing before he dies but jacob's no fool i mean he might be a liar but he sure ain't no idiot and he replies verse 11 but my brother esau's a hairy man and he really he must have been quite hairy and i'm a man of smooth skin what if my father touches me? It would appear to be tricking him. It would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them. and He brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her oldest son, which she had in the house, and put them on the younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made, and Jacob goes in. And I want to say, even though we know how this story will end, Because God's already promised how this story will end. The older will serve the younger. We wait on the edge of our seats, don't we? To see what's going to happen next. I mean, is Isaac really that doddery? Is a goatskin desire seriously going to work? I mean, what if Esau comes back with the bow still in his hand in verse 18, he went to his father and said, and what I can only imagine was his best Esau impersonation, my, <clears throat> my, my, my father. It's a little more buzz like you than Esau maybe, but my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie one. I have done as you told me to do. Lie two. Please sit up and eat some of my game so you may give me your blessing. Isaac looked at his son. He asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, lie three. Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And Jacob went close to his father Isaac who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. and he did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy, like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am. Lie for. And he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. With everything he had tended to give his favorite son, Isaac, he blessed him. And then just as Jacob, verse 30, had scarcely left the room, his brother Esau comes in, in from the hunting, and with exactly the same opening words, and with exactly the same request, and without impersonation, he too asks his father for blessing. Look, verse 32. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I I ate it just before you came in and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And Esau heard his father's words. he, He burst out with a loud and bitter cry and he said to his father, Bless me, me too father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He, he took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. And he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered, He saw, I made him Lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants. And I've sustained him with grain and new wines. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau, the man's man, the man of the open country, wept aloud. And I want to say, maybe. Maybe. Just maybe. We'd feel a little sorry for Esau, wouldn't we? Esau certainly feels sorry for himself. And maybe we would feel sorry for him. If not for what we already know. If not that we already know. That not only is this the fulfilment of God's promise through the sinfulness of Jacob, but this is at exactly the same time the consequences of Esau's actions in the despising of his birthright. You see, Esau gets, and the way the story is told, the author's at pains to make sure we get it too, Esau gets nothing other than he deserves. Esau gets nothing other than what he'd chosen for himself, even as God had chosen it for him. Now I want to say I think, it's, I want to say, I think it, it seems a shame to halt the story there and there's plenty more to tell in the Jacob and Esau story. We're going to hear some more of the next few weeks but we are going to pause um, for the sake of supper and other things and we're going to ask right now, what do we learn? In particular, um, in regards to sovereignty, responsibility, to, to both God's choice and ours, the question we started with, what do we learn? Well, the first thing we learn, it seems to me, is that divine sovereignty that is God's complete control and human responsibility, that is our responsibility for our actions and our decisions in our lives, are both true and real and are not opposed to one another about you I, th- I think the way we usually deal with the question of divine sovereignty, human responsibility, if, if ever we deal with the problem of divine sovereignty, human responsibility. The, the way we usually deal with the dreaded P word comes up every single university conference and most growth groups, at least the one I'm in. the predestination word, the, the idea that God has predestined our futures for us, especially our eternal future. And the way we, we deal with the, with the so-called free will, which would be better described as real will, the idea that we do make real decisions, real choices in our real life, the way we usually deal with those two things, I think it's to hold them apart, isn't it? To treat them as, a, as either and or. And so you're going to have to choose one or the other, which will it be? But the story of Jacob and Esau shows us Just as the Bible shows us again and again and again, that's not a choice we have to make. And indeed, to make that choice is to deny what God has clearly said. Because he has told us and he has shown us loudly and clearly. He is completely, entirely, utterly, unquestionably sovereign. Just as we saw in the birth of Jacob and Esau. As he announced ahead of time the future that awaited them, because he decided ahead of time the future that awaited them. He's also told us that our real decisions bring real consequences, just as they did for Esau, when with his own real will, turned away from God, away from his promises, away from his grace. See, we think either it is God who's sovereign, or it is us who's responsible. You can only have one or the other, when again and again, the Bible asserts that it's both. Indeed, and you might be interested to know this, again and again, the Bible asserts them both together. The Bible again and again speaks of God exercising his sovereign will through our responsible decisions. So, Acts 2. This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. God's set purpose, their responsible actions. Or Acts chapter 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, And conspired against your holy servant, there's the responsibility, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. With fingers crossed, Philippians 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's you, with your real will. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. See, it's sovereignty and responsibility, not enemies but friends. Indeed, they say uh, C. H. Spurgeon, this handsome fella, was asked once if, if he would try to reconcile and this must have been again university conference, I'd reckon, if he could just reconcile the truth of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Do you know his answer? It's a smart one. I wouldn't try. Why? Because it's too difficult. Because it's not possible? Because they're, they're just not real? No. Because, he said, I never reconcile friends. I never reconcile friends. There's no need for reconciliation between sovereignty and responsibility. They go again and again and again together. See, that's why when the, the New Testament authors pick up this story, rather than pit one, Against the other, they both warn us from the example of Esau and his real responsibility. And they comfort us from the example of Jacob and God's divine and merciful sovereignty. See, in Hebrews, we're warned. See that no one, great warning for our day. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Who, for a single meal, sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Don't be like Esau, he says. Don't settle for a momentary pleasure. Be it sexual or financial or personal or relational, with your hands, with your body, with your mouth, with your tongue, with the gossip, with anything, don't exchange whatever your version of a sip of soup is for the glory that God offers. Instead, learn from Esau's mistake. Take a bigger view, take a longer view. Live more than for more than just now. Lest like Esau you reach that final day when Jesus returns and the verdict comes in and the blessings are seen and cry as you might and please as you would, you will bring about no change of mind. C.S. Lewis wrote, We are half hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're, we're, We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so let's make sure we're not. Let's heed the warning of Esau. And let's hear the comfort of Jacob. Let's see again how how wonderful and merciful and gracious is our God. That he would choose even Jacob. And that he could choose even us. See, one of the things I think we're supposed to be asking all the way through that Genesis account, Jacob and Esau, is why Jacob? I mean, don't get me wrong. Esau is a rat bag and he gets what's coming to him. But Jacob's no better. Why choose Jacob? Well, a reading from Romans 9 tells us, were you listening to that first one? Look at it again from verse 10. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, who had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in the election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul knows what question we're going to ask next because he goes on with this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, and it's good because it couldn't and it wouldn't, depend on man's desire, which we don't have, or effort, which we could not do, but on God's mercy. See, why did God choose Jacob? Well, it had nothing to do with family or with race. After all, how could it? He and Esau are from the same family. They're from the same race. And it had nothing to do with merit and nothing to do with performance. After all, how could it? He chose it before they were born, before they did anything. Then why did God choose Jacob? It was, in the end, because he is merciful. Neither deserved his choosing, but he chose one anyway. See, here's what I think. I think whenever we think of God choosing some for salvation, we imagine there's this great steady flow of people trying to move toward God, all desiring him, trying to come with him, and there's God standing there. And and some he lets in, and others he pushes back, like some bouncer at the door. Or else he's, he's holding out some measuring line, like some perverse amusement round kind of criteria. And, and those who make it over, well, they can come in. And those just under, I'm sorry, you're gone. But that is not the picture of the Bible. And that is not the truth of reality. In actual fact, we're all like Jacob. And we're all like Esau. And we're all like Isaac. And we're all like Rebecca. All of us are rotten, raw material. All of us, left to ourselves, are on a steady, persistent march away from God. Away from his blessing. Away from his glory. And yet in mercy. See verse 14? And in compassion. well, 15 again in the innocent and willing death of his son, in the generous personal gift of his spirit, God chases us down. God overtakes us. God overcomes us and turns us back to him. But why some and not all, we say? When the question you're supposed to ask is, why some and not None. It's in the mercy of God that he chooses any at all. And so you see, that should keep us humble. And that should keep us grateful. And that should keep us confident. Because we know the decision came from him. It was he who chose us. He knew ahead of time the life would lead. He knows ahead of time the mistakes you're yet to make. And yet he, if you're a Christian, chose you to receive his blessing and to be a blessing to others. With that, let's pray.